We're live, <laughs> episode two. <laughs> it's Juneteenth. We're reading from the autobiography of Asada Shakur. Start. Should we do a little um, intro? Intro. Oh, yeah, yeah. It'd be good to give a little intro about who she is and what she's about. I have a The Nation article here. Okay. Yeah. Let's start with, with a that. quick. Um, okay. Um, my name is Shakur, and I escaped slave. So it begins an open letter written by Shakur, formerly of both the Black Panther Party and Black Liberation Army, currently exiled political prisoner. The letter itself dates back to 1998, but in the past weeks, there has been a renewed interest in reading Shakur, in her own words, as the FBI added the iconic figure to their list of most wanted terrorists. And along the New Jersey State Police announced a $2 million reward for any information that might lead to her capture. Um, her infamy began after the May 2, 19, a New Jersey state trooper. Um, yeah, she's, she's like currently correct. living in Cuba. Yeah, she's currently living in Cuba. The autobiography was written and published in 1988 um, after she had been through a lot of shit with the law, being jailed multiple times, being accused of things she did not do. Um, yeah, there was a lot. Well, let, let's just read from the selections and then we'll have our discussion. <laughs> so starting on page 64. Um, one day they brought me a big bushel of string beans. This is at a point where she's in jail, by the way. One day they brought me a big bushel of string beans. They grew a lot of their food at the workhouse. The men worked in the field. Here, we want you to snap these string beans. How much are you gonna pay me? I asked. We don't pay no inmate nothing, but if you snap these beans, we'll let your door stay open while you snap them. I don't work for nothing. I ain't gonna be no slave for nobody. Don't you know that slavery was outlawed? No, the guard said, you're wrong. Slavery was outlawed with the exception of prisons. Slavery is legal in prisons. I looked it up and sure enough, she was right. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Well, that explained a lot of things. That explained why jails and prisons all over the country are filled to the brim with black and third world people, why so many black people can't find a job on the streets and are forced to survive the best way they know how. Once you're in prison, there are plenty of jobs. And if you don't know how to work, they beat you up and throw you in a hole. If every state had to pay workers to do the jobs prisoners are forced to do, the salaries would amount to billions. License plates alone would, would amount to millions. When Jimmy Carter was governor of Georgia, he brought a black woman from prison to clean the state house and babysat, babysit for Amy. Prisons are profitable businesses. They are a way of legally perpetuating slavery. In every state, more and more prisons are being built and even more are on the drawing board. Who are they for? They certainly aren't planning to put white people in them. Prisons are part of this government's genocidal war against black and third world people. On July 19th, 1973, I was taken to New York to be arraigned on a Queens um, bank robbery indictment in Brooklyn federal court. The trip was like a surrealistic cartoon. There must have been at least 12 cars in the procession and a New Jersey state trooper's car was stationed at every exit on the turnpike. All the cars had lights on and sirens going. A helicopter trailed us and the pigs in the car I was in were comical. At every point they would say something like, at least we got to the turnpike. 
At least we got to the bridge. At least we got to New York. At least we made it to the court. Whenever they passed a police car, they waved and sometimes raised their fists. When the Jersey police were replaced by New York police at the bridge of Staten Island, they shook hands and gave each other the power sign. They even called each other brother. This is my brother officer, so-and-so. They acted like they were on some dangerous mission inside of Russia. They were actually afraid. White people's fear of black people with guns will never cease to amaze me. Probably it's because they think that, they think about what they would do were they in our place especially the police who have done so much dirt to black people that their guilty conscience tells them to be afraid. When black people seriously organize and take up arms to fight our, for our liberation, there will be a lot of white people who will drop dead from no other reason than their own guilt and fear. Um, page 146, this is a poem that's in her autobiography called Leftovers or What is Left. After the bars and gates and the degradation, what is left? After the lock-ins and the lockouts and the lock-ups, what is left? I mean, after the chains that get entangled in the gray of one's matter and the bars that get stuck in the hearts of men and women, what is left? After the tears and disappointments, after the lonely isolation, after the cut wrist and the heavy news, what is left? I mean, like after the commissary kisses and the get your shit off blues, after the hustlers have been hustled, what is left? After the murder burgers and the goon squads and the tear gas and the bulls and the bullpens and the bullshit, what is left? Like after you know that God can't be trusted, after you know that the shrink is a pusher, that the word is a whip and the badge is a bullet, what is left? After you know that the dead are still walking, after you realize that silence is talking, that outside and inside are just an illusion, what is left? I mean, like, where is the sun? Where are her arms and where are her kisses? Where are the lip prints on my pillow? I'm searching, what is left? I mean, like nothing is standstill and nothing is abstract. The wing of a butterfly can't take flight. The foot on my neck is part of a body. The song that I sing is part of an echo. What is left? I mean, like love is specific. Is my mind a machine gun? Is my heart a hacksaw? Can I make freedom real? Yeah, what is left? I'm at the top and the bottom of the lowerarchy. I am an earth lover from my way back. I'm in love with losers and laughter. I'm in love with freedom and children. Love is my sword and truth is my compass. What is left? Okay. Quote, my patient on page 155, my patience was zero. I didn't want any, I didn't want to wait for something to happen. I was into living and living for now. I was hungry, starving for life. But at the same time, I was growing more and more cynical every day. I wanted to go everywhere, do everything, and be everything all at the same time. I wanted to experience everything, to know how everything felt. I made many zigzag conflicting ideals rolling in my head at the same time. One day I was happy to just be alive and young and moving. The next day I felt like the world was coming to an end. Everything in my life was jagged, sharp, unfinished edges. Nothing happened calmly. Nothing was like I had thought it, was, it would be when I was little. My friends were dying from OD or from overdosing and going into the army. My girlfriends had babies and were looking and sounding old. Nice old men sitting in the park weren't nice old men at all, but were busy masturbating under their newspapers. I got so I didn't believe in anything. It seemed that everybody was in some kind of bag, the dope bag, the whiskey paper brown bag, the Jesus bag, the love bag, the sex bag, the make it bag, and none of those bags were doing anybody any good. I was looking for my own bag, but the pickings were slim. I kept on looking nevertheless, running and moving and hanging out until I was running myself ragged. One day I'd be downtown hanging out with my hippie whippy, black hippie friends. The next day I'd be uptown hanging out with the hustlers, but nothing seemed like it was for real, you know? 
the same dudes who would be talking slick and sniffing coke out of $50 bills one day would be scrounging and begging for a loan the next. Even the most successful hustlers seem to be nothing but flunkies and potential fall guys for the mafia. My friends from downtown weren't much better. At best, most of them were professional escape artists into escape artists into escaping the problems of the black community or those of the white community. Some of them tried to escape through drugs, tripping over worlds that didn't exist on some kind of inner space odyssey. But in their case, the drugs were usually not entirely self-destructive. Although I know at least one who zoomed dead out of this world and just didn't come back. Through my hippie blippy friends, I got it turned on to a lot of things though. I got into poets like Allen Ginsberg, Sylvia Plath, Ferlinghetti, all kinds of novelists, music, food, etc. I didn't relate to everything I checked out, but my horizons got a whole lot broader. My growing impatience with petty bourgeoisie upward, upward bound Negroes became or came to a head when I went to work with a black employment agency. Evelyn had gotten me a job there as a typist. The agency was lo located in Rockefeller Center in the same building with Johnson Publications, the publishers of Ebony and Jet magazines. I was happy as hell to get the job since I was tired of working for white people. The people in the office were nice and the atmosphere was completely lacking in tension. The boss was decent enough and I had a pretty good relationship with him and his secretary under whom I worked. At first I was excited to be, to, at first I was excited, glad to be around so many black people who seemed to be doing so good. Everyone was making it, moving up the ladder. Black men and women with long lists of degrees and briefcase were in and out of the place. They were sharp, dressed to a T, talking about junior executive training programs, poverty programs, etc. Some of them talked about those companies as if they were going to be the president of the board of directors in five years. Once in a while, I went to lunch with a young man who worked at Johnson Publications, but we always got into arguments, especially about Ebony Magazine. Half the time in the fashion section, they would have these elaborate evening gowns that would cost thousands of dollars. When I asked him what black people could afford to buy them and whether they were gonna wear them to the corner bar, he got insulted. He was one of those black people who think that if you are free, you can go into a store and buy expensive things. I told him that the only black woman who could afford those dresses was Johnson's wife. And he even got more insulted. He told me that everything was changing. Everything was so much better. If I said, I said that if things were so much better, how come every time a black person got a good job or, or was a manager or something, it was news and it was printed in ebony. Our relationship ended abruptly when he accused me of always trying to bring the black people down and making it seem like we don't have nothing. I ended the matter by cursing him out and that was that. These black people went around acting as if there was no such thing as prejudice and that all you had to do was study and you'd be the president of the world. At the agency, we were working hard for equal opportunity for an equal opportunity conference. The idea was to have black graduate, uh, college graduates from all over the country participate in interviews with representatives from the major corporations in America. Almost all of the big corporations were involved and the graduates paid a substantial fee, plus transportation and hotel fees to participate in the conference. It worked like this. Students made out resumes and the corporate personnel officers decided which applicants they wanted to see. It was a big plush affair in a major New York hotel with the penthouse suite and quite a few lower floors rented out to the conference. I just knew that hundreds of these young quote unquote qualified black people were going to get jobs. I was proud to have helped bring the conference about. It lasted a few days and by the time it was over, I was ready to go somewhere and have a good cry. By some of, the, some of these black graduates had spent hundreds of dollars to come to the conference and didn't have one interview. The only graduates the corporations even wanted to see were math, science, engineering, and business majors. Some corporations only wanted to interview graduates in specialized categories like petroleum engineering or 
geological engineering. Since most had majored in subjects like English, history, sociology, etc., they were out of running from, from the jump. I was shocked and upset. After the conference, I went out with one of the black executives I had met in the agency. I don't understand it, I kept telling him. Why would these companies pay all this money to participate in a conference if they aren't really interested in hiring anybody? It doesn't make any sense. He said, it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. I said, huh? I don't understand. Listen, he went on. The government says that in order for these companies to keep their contracts, they have to at least make an effort to look for qualified black personnel. The law doesn't say they have to hire anybody. The law says they've only got to look. I was furious. They had used poor dumb me just like they used a drug dealer to conspire against his own people. I was part of the plot and I didn't even know it. There were some blacks who got jobs, but mainly the thing was a sham to make things look good on paper. So my friend and I got stupidly drunk singing oldies by the Sherrills on Lexington, Lexington Avenue. He telling me about what bastards the bosses were and about the trials and the treacheries of the Dem Democratic Party machine, telling me how I was gonna get another job as a go-go dancer in the ladies room. After about a week, I made up a resume, described myself as a college graduate and was hired as a marketing assistant. I didn't believe in anything and I wasn't gonna follow anyone's rules but my own. I got fired from that job a couple of weeks later. <laughs> okay. I'm paid. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Nothing changes. Nothing changes. I, I really feel like I'm reading like just like a, a, a Twitter thread from someone who just graduated from an IB. Literally. Like the thing about reading things from the 60s, 60s, I at least starting in the 60s I feel like 50s 60s for today is just like so nothing has changed at all it's wild we keep we keep thinking at least like for me like coming to the states I was like oh like you know things today are much better than they were 60 70 years ago when was this was this um written again it was published in 88 but I'm sure this experience was probably earlier so who knows 70s 80s this thing was going on um the part where she talks about i was listening to the podcast you sent me mm. i didn't finish it but it's called hella black podcast episode 62 the myth of black buying power um and it talked about how you have all these universities, including like um, HBCUs who are prioritizing STEM fields mm -hmm. and yeah, ma mainly STEM um, as a means towards social mobility. Mm -hmm. um, and I think since we're both STEM majors, <laughs> yeah, that might be something relevant for us as well. I, yeah, I think it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely worth discussing. <laughs> the role of like the stem everything becomes an industrial complex but honestly like the stem industrial complex <laughs> like every technology that exists has like started out like everything we have it starts out either for the military or for aerospace like during the cold yeah. war yeah yeah and like that goes for me for electrical engineering and i'm making transistors and computers and for you who's studying neuroscience like i, I mean, don't know you Neuroscience, because it's new, I guess, like, it's not that we, hmm, I don't know, I don't know about things like fMRI, I don't know if they, they started using those for 
military purposes, but like things, it's everything that people talk about is very, not everything, but a lot of things that people talk about are very like commercially oriented, where it'll be things like how like companies want to hire people who study neuroscience and psychology so that they can better understand how to market to people, not because they're interested in like understanding psychology. It is also very much about defining who, like, I mean, when it comes to things about biology and because neuroscience also definitely has a lot of medical uh, implications and origins as a field, it's a lot about defining what it means to be healthy, I guess, quote unquote healthy or normal or typical. Um, there's definitely been a lot of, like, not a lot, a lot, like, as it comes to a percentage of the field of neuroscience, but there is more than a handful of studies that talk about gender and sexuality in the brain and, like, just the way that science is set up a lot of times, like, as it comes to experimentation, I feel like it makes it seem such that anyone who is not, like, cis straight is kind of like a patient because they're like being compared like you'll take these people for example in one of my classes they had an outside speaker come and talk about um what was the overall class like something about uh something about innate behavior like the neuroscience of innate behavior so they had people so they had a professor come and talk about um yeah, I guess like sexuality and as as well as like gender identi identification and like her studies are pretty much just like taking like I forget if it was mice or monkeys or something and like activating a particular area in the brain or, or like disactivating a particular area in the brain. I'm being super vague because I don't remember all the details about it. Um, and like seeing how the mice reacted differently in terms of like, who are they trying to reproduce with? Like, so who, how is the mice, mouse identifying their own gender, like their role, et cetera. And then like these things are supposed to, like the idea generally is like with mice and monkeys and whatever is like these ideas are supposed to extrapolate to how humans interact with each other. And it's just like, what? It's just like, <laughs> what? what? <laughs> yeah, right? What? It's like, First of all, obviously humans have such more complex thoughts, processes, I would think, than what is going on with a mouse, for sure, and probably a monkey. Um, and two, it's also like, I don't know, when you get to the point, when you get to a point where it's something that people can change physiologically, where they'll think, okay, if we just isolate this particular part of the brain, and if we remove it, this person is going to be like straight, or they're going to be cisgendered, that becomes so hugely problematic in terms of eugenics. <laughs> and like, yeah, that's literally eugenics. They're unborn children, yeah. <laughs> and they, and these professors are just running around in Ivy Leagues and saying things like this and being applauded for it. <laughs> yeah pretty much like it's it, it's a bit wild i mean obviously you could go to see it like polit any politics department in a university international relations they'll be saying the craziest stuff as well just like the fact that you are at higher education means that you're already like accepting all of these crazy ideas and um putting your head down and like being like okay i'll work within these terms yeah i feel like yeah once you get 
once you get into academia, I think that a lot of people have accepted the notion that it's just removed from people's day-to-day -day lives. So like the implications of what it means for you to be debating in politics, like colonization, or like what it means for you to debating in neuroscience, gender identity as like almost a deformity of the brain. It's like, it's just crazy. Yeah, and then at the same time, a lot of people who are coming into these fields and are like underrepresented or don't, you know, make up the majority of the field based on whatever background they have are ask, like trying to ask some unique or different questions. And people will say, we're not interested in looking in that stuff or like, it's too hard to try and answer that question. So you're still like asking the same stupid questions that they're asking that are going nowhere. Or they'll co-opt you because the, the problem isn't just like them. It's like the whole framework, right? It's like, oh, there needs to be like a standard brain. There needs to be like a normal and a deviant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You have to accept the framework if you of want something to is typical and something else is deviant. Yeah. The, in the beginning when, you know, she's talking about being in prison, um, the displays of power. Mm. Um, I feel like it, like her whole journey, you know, of what, like, I don't, you know, of all that you've read so far, it seems like it's something very similar to us and people that we know. And she, like, it went really south for her. Like, it went really bad for her. Yeah. And she, like, stayed true to herself. You know, she did what she had to do. How do you proceed knowing that if you do what you're supposed to do, that's what's going to happen to you? I don't know. That really scares me, to be honest. Like, it, it does scare me a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, especially as we're talking about, like, the protests and stuff that have been going on. Like, you really never know... If you just, if you stand up for what you believe in and it is not what the government wants you to do, it's a very scary thing. Like even today I was reading a lot of tweets about somebody who who was picked up by the police because they got like a picture of one of the people who was like throwing Molotov cocktails into the empty police car. Um, and they were able to pick them out because of a photo someone had taken of them and then they got like the design off their shirt which was linked to some Etsy account and they talked to the person who like they either talked to the person who owns the Etsy account or hacked into the Etsy account to see what the order history is and were then able to link it to this individual in particular and it's like just the A to B to C it's like no one is safe wow I did not know that yeah Jesus. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Because when the part where she was talking about all the, like, cars and all the performance and all the gesturing, it was very much like, oh, like, you know, like, the power, it, it like, half of the power is visual and it's performative. But mm -hmm. then you, like, are like, they also can hack anything and find anyone. <laughs> it's like, true. It's both literal and performative at the same time. Yeah. This is going to sound depressing, but I do think that we might be at an unprecedented 
I, I think we should be really careful when we say that these times are unprecedented because they're clearly not. But we are at a unique time in history where like the government has so much power because of these technologies that um, STEM <laughs> majors have helped create. Yeah. That they, yes, they have absolute power, but unlike any absolutist leader in the past millennia, they can actually do whatever they want. They kind of really can more. I don't know if more so now than ever. Yeah, it's hard to say when things are unprecedented, when obviously you haven't seen everything. But yeah, we are definitely at a point. There's so much ability to identify and surveil that I don't think people have had access to to before as governments. So yeah, that is definitely very frightening. (laughs) 